you know, I think true indications of, you know, my integrity level and my ability to relate to people is the fact that on every deal that we put together, we do the due diligence up front that any buyer would do and maybe do it better than most buyers. And so by the time I prepare a proposal for somebody or put marketing materials together, um, you know, we, we've read all the leases. We've, you know, some guys are reluctant to share due diligence and it's a, a shocking uh, situation where, well, I'm just going to send you a rent roll and tell me what it's worth. And, and I'm like, is that really the way you want me to approach this? You don't want me to study the, the historical, you know, operating data. You don't want me to study that, you know, when we read the leases, you don't want me to abstract the leases. You don't want me to go through the, the, the thorough and comprehensive exercise of underwriting your deal. No, just, just, just here's the rent roll. Give me, tell me what your number is. And, and so uh, th- th- there, therein lies the, a, a horrible situation where I'm, I won't be able to uh, put forth the effort that I think is required to do, as my dad said, if you're going to do something, do it right the first time because you're going to have to spend you know, uh, additional time redoing your, your work. Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast, where investors, developers, brokers, and real estate entrepreneurs join together to grow, build, and execute on experience and strategies within the commercial real estate industry. We sit down with the top pros and leaders within the commercial real estate field and gain knowledge and insight from their success. We're glad you're here and look forward to connecting with you. You can find the CRE Project on all major podcast platforms, along with YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey listeners, welcome to today's show. Uh, have a great one here for you. We welcome John Riser with Riser Retail Group uh, out of Indianapolis uh, on the show with us today and uh, have a really, really great conversation with John. Uh, he originally started in 2001 as a Marcus and Milchap broker, but before that, he was actually a retailer himself um, and decided to get into the commercial real estate game. So we talked to him about how he basically went from a retailer to a top producing broker at Marcus and Milchap to uh, owning properties himself and, and being an investor. So uh, discuss how he underwrites deals and his global uh, viewpoint on the market today. So we learned a lot. We know you will too. Sit back, relax. Here we go. So, John, thanks so much for being with us on the CRE Project podcast today. It's an honor uh, to have you on. So thank you for for saying yes to our invite. And, um, you know, we've given uh, the listeners in our intro some some brief background on who you are and what you've accomplished. But to kind of start out the show, we'd really like to kind of hear that from you, how you started um, in the business, kind of grew up, you know, through M&M and then started your own brokerage and then doing some investment buys and purchases. So we just really like to kind of hear your background to start it off. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Um, obviously, we recently met um, when I acquired a, a building in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, which uh, kind of, well, I guess we'll go back to 
that whole uh, story uh, later in the podcast. But, yeah. um, you know, I've been an entrepreneur my entire existence. Um, uh, and so when I was, a, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, I was sh- shoveling snow from driveways and raking leaves, and mowing grass and uh, waxing the cool guy's car in my neighborhood in order to make some money. And so, uh, uh, and then I was in retail. I owned a chain of skate and surf shops in Indianapolis, a landlocked city where I sold coastal apparel and skateboards and snowboards. Very interesting. I've always, uh, and and the reason that I I think I got into uh, the shopping center business back 23 years ago was that my leasing agent at my surf and skate shop in Indianapolis, when I leased my first space from him, pulled up in a beautiful Mercedes driving, uh, you know, beautiful uh, convertible Mercedes and got out of the car wearing this gorgeous Armani suit, wearing a Rolex and (laughs) some really cool sunglasses. And I was just like, what am I doing? I mean, immediately at that point, I realized that maybe I'm in the wrong uh, line of work here because I'm now going to pay him uh, the cam, the taxes and insurance and rent. Uh, And then at any point he can charge me any, you know, CapEx items that he deems that I'm responsible for. And so I always remember that moment in time. Uh, That was in the mid 80s. And so I didn't get into the real estate business until uh, 2000. Um, How old were you when you when you got in? I'm I'm not going to talk about age. (laughs) Rude that you ask that question. Fair enough. and I, you wouldn't ask that of, um, you know, a female, uh, <laughs> guest, would you? No, I was in uh, my mid thirties. So, gotcha. when, when, and then I found, uh, I, I got, I interviewed with a few guys that were building beautiful shopping centers around the country and they all denied me an opportunity to join them. And so I, I found Marcus and Millichap. And so, um, I joined Marcus and Millichap. Of course, the M&M is myopically focused on the disposition of investment-grade real estate. And if we'll refer back to those years, you know, uh, just having an email address in the late 90s and having, you know, there was no high speed. Everybody was dial-up, modems. Um, uh, Google was just becoming who they are. And so when I started... Uh, I, I've always been a huge, uh, I've always loved retail and the execution of retail, whether it's, um, you know, clothing or groceries or whatever. I've always appreciated from a very young age, um, you know, Italian clothing and the way it was merchandised at a department store. I was always observant of that, never thinking that I was going to get, you know, it was going to be my career path at some point. So when I started at M&M, everyone in that era and everyone from the beginning of the shopping center and commercial real estate sector um, were, were market specialists, right? So, you know, in the 50s, shopping centers and malls started to become be built. And so from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, if you were in commercial real estate, you were a market specialist. And you, you, you knew your market, you knew all the inventory in the market, you knew all the owners, and the disposition of uh, and and, and uh, uh, real estate in previous decades, with, with the financing was all done by local banks. Uh, CMBS had not even been invented yet. So when I started in 2000, you know, there were no iPhones. Uh, we, and and, and that, the, the BlackBerry started. And, you know, the BlackBerry was, uh, BlackBerry. was, 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 was the best 
and you know investment sales broker tool ever invented because no matter if you were, no matter where, where you were you know you could get your emails and respond yeah. to them it was yeah. the weirdest concept ever i remember when i got my first one like the yeah. holy grail of business tools yeah. So when I got to M&M and I, I cut my teeth early on, I, I was told that, I, that, that they, were gonna, they weren't going to give me a, uh, Indianapolis where I, I was located. And I could have everything but Indianapolis because there was a senior guy there and he was in charge of it. So immediately I had to become a relationship specialist and a product type specialist in a world that was a market specialty outfit, right? And so with, with all the tools that we were afforded uh, as they were coming online, so to speak, I immediately embarked on relationships. And so I, I, I you know, obviously was databasing. And my first deal out of the gate was a shopping center in Fort Wayne, Indiana, called Apple Glen, Glen Crossing. And you know, interest rates at the time were probably in the eight, eight and a half ca- ca- uh, interest rate range and cap rates were you know, eight and a half, nine. Uh, but you know, obviously you need a spread between your cap rate and interest rate to get the positive leverage. So I, I went, I drove up to Fort Wayne. I got an $18.8 million listing with a 3% fee as my first deal. Wow. And I, sold, I sold it and I sold it to a REIT and I, I'm talking, I, it was 15 minutes after I got back from training at Marcus and Milichap that this all went down. So I just hit the ground running and, and immediately embarked on uh, the relationship path. And I, I then started going where those relationships take, would take me, whether it was in the Midwest, the Gulf Coast, the Eastern Seaboard, primarily east of the Mississippi. And so for a period of time, I was the number one shopping center broker at Marcus and Mulchap based in Indianapolis, and nobody could figure out why. And it was easy. I wasn't working, you know, if I was the guy in Denver that is the best guy in Denver was just doing deals in Denver. The guy in Los Angeles was doing deals within five miles of where his office was. The guy in New York was just doing deals in New York. And I was doing deals, you know, all across the Gulf Coast region, all throughout a swath of the Midwest, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. And it was really because I went in and, you know, told a colorful story about my life and kind of distracted people from my lack of, you know, retail real estate acumen and convinced them that I was a guy that would, you know, represent their interest incredibly well without really having a track record in which to, um, you know, propel myself on. Other than the fact that I just closed a, you know, an $18.5 million deal with a REIT out of um, Boston and, and, you know, and how successful I am. I just kind of used that as my deal story. For sure. And so... Um, you know, know, I worked the same, you know, there's lots of, you know, uh, forks in the roads as I went through those years, but there was this period of time where Californians were exiting their multifamily investments that that, that have been passed down through the generations and looking for more yield, trying to buy shopping centers in the Midwest and the Gulf Coast and on the East Coast. So there was a period of time where CMBS lending became in vogue, where everybody was getting non-recourse financing for 10 years on shopping centers that where the paint was still drying, whether they be Walmart shadow anchor deals, Sam's Club shadow anchor deals, Target shadow anchor deals, grocery anchor deals. And so for years, I was doing 100 million bucks a year in sales to all different types of buyers, but a large percentage of them were West Coast exchange buyers looking for more yield. Mm-hmm. During yeah. that time, you know, my whole objective was to continue to, to, to nurture and foster the relationships 
with with the guys that either build centers or buy centers and, and add value to them and then would give them to me without me having to compete for the listings. And so that sustained me, uh, you know, until the um, financial crisis, if you want to call it a recession or a depression, yeah. uh, you know, the day Lehman Brothers BK'd, I took my boutique brokerage shop not knowing that the world was going to have a liquidity crisis for the next couple of years. But I, I left M&M at that point. And I really had my own boutique brokerage company within their brokerage company mm-hmm. because I was double ending, you know, 90% of the deals that I brought to market anyway. And I potentially knew who the buyers were of those deals before I even took them to market. And sure. so I had my, you know, I then took my business um, away from the M&M umbrella and started my own shop. And that's what allowed me the freedom to uh, work on both sides of the desk, acquiring real estate with the money I make from my brokerage company and then continuing to focus on, you know, brokerage. Sure. No, absolutely. So I uh, appreciate that, that background. And it's a really fun story and a unique one which I, which I can appreciate, but I'd really like to focus. And you mentioned it a few times, you know, how you focus when you were starting on building and being very strategic and nurturing and fostering relationships and like pop the hood a little bit on that. I mean, what, what do you feel like you do exceptionally well to build relationships and nurture them? And where do you feel like most brokers and professionals in the real real estate industry, where do they go wrong with relationships? Well, every day I'm confronted with um, underwriting deals uh, for clients and they tell me, well, so-and-so from X shop just said that they could get a four cap for my shopping. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and and they showed you how they were going to execute on that plan. How? And they go, "Oh, oh, well, they just said that they have buyers, you know, from California that are willing to pay those things. And so, um, you know, there, there's, uh, that's an excellent point. I, I, initially, and still to this day, when I'm going to meet someone new or uh, try to earn someone's business, I try to do some research on them. And look, we all have colorful lives. Uh, and the way, uh, and, and obviously, I can draw on many experiences, some of, of, of those experiences I've I told you about, but I try to find common ground with people. And, and sometimes uh, it's hard to break people down, but sharing my life stories, whether they're um, uh, some of my, I've been in broadcast sports television for, this will be my 39th year. I worked uh, three nationally televised NFL games this year for uh, Fox and CBS. Uh, I've been to the Olympics and won an Emmy award in 2004. Uh, you know, I've snowboarded all over the world. Um, I'm an art collector. I mean, all the weird idiosyncrasies and things that I collect vintage motorcycles. I try to find something in common with everyone. And it may not be my hobbies or my, my, you know, um, things I collect or my weird idiosyncrasies or the sports that I enjoy. It may be something about them that I can uh, find uh, relatable. Right. Uh, And so, you know, I play golf and, you know, there's a lot of guys that play golf. And so, if I'm trying to break a guy down, I invite him to my club or I try to work, you know, if he's lives somewhere, I, I try to bring up conversational things to, to kind of distract, to kind of get them at ease that I'm, I'm a normal guy or I've got an interesting story to tell them or find something in common. So uh, years, I mean, I really used to um, 
I would call tenants and I would ask tenants of a shopping center, hey, what's your landlord like? Have you ever met him? What mm-hmm. kind of car does he drive? Good, good uh, you know, uh, and I, I remember one time uh, on a shopping center that I listed, uh, one of the tenants uh, told me that he, he, he loves dogs. Every time he comes here, he brings his German Shepherd, right? And so the first conversation I had with him, uh, you know, I had my dog in the office with me and the dog was barking and, uh, you know, uh, we found a common ground there. Absolutely. So at the end of the day, you know, it's, it, it, there's many different, I mean, there, there's no um, set, I mean, everybody's different. So you have to assess their personality if they're willing to engage in a friendship. Uh, and I, I think I would, most of my relationships that I started with 20 plus years ago, are, are I still have today, and uh, many of them uh, I've bonded with those guys. Um, a with 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 humor, uh, B with execution at the highest level possible. Um, uh, never you know never having my integrity or my fiduciary questioned. Uh, and you know when you have a boutique operation, um, you can't bang the sign over the door every morning when you come in. Uh, if you've screwed up the day before, because, the, you know, it's a small industry and, mm. um, you know, I do make, everybody makes mistakes and I, I do make mistakes, but be accountable to those mistakes if you make them and never make them again. And so one of the other, uh, um, you know, I think true indications of, you know, my integrity level and my ability to relate to people is the fact that on every deal that we put together, we do the due diligence up front that any buyer would do and maybe do it better than most buyers. And so by the time I prepare a proposal for somebody or put marketing materials together, um, you know, we, we've read all the leases. We've, you know, some guys are reluctant to share due diligence and it's a, a shocking uh, situation where, well, I'm just going to send you a rent roll and tell me what it's worth. And, and I'm like, is that really the way you want me to approach this? You don't want me to study the, the historical, you know, operating data. You don't want me to study that, you know, when we read the leases, you don't want me to abstract the leases. You don't want me to go through the, the, the thorough and comprehensive exercise of underwriting your deal. No, just, just, just here's the rent roll. Give me, tell me what your number is. And, and so uh, th- th- there, therein lies the, a, a horrible situation where I'm, I won't be able to uh, put forth the effort that I think is required to do. As my dad said, if you're going to do something, do it right the first time, because you're going to have to spend, you know, uh, additional time redoing your, your work. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that, you know, in, in bonding with people and, and relating to people, they, they see that we go through the tenacious exercise of uncovering every issue, uh, learning where all the dead bodies are, uh, you know, under the property and getting all those dead bodies up to the surface and then being honest with people because we have, and the, the, I mean, we can talk about it now or we can talk about it later. We, we are finally in a transitionary period in real estate where the 10 year just lurched over 2%, uh, first time going over 2% since June of 2019. And so I got quotes yesterday for, for projects in 2021, everyone was financing deals sub 3%. Now we're financing deals or sub three percent. Now we're fi- now four percent is the norm, and four plus is going to be the norm going forward. So, yesterday I underwrote a large uh, grocery anchor shopping center in Illinois and had the tough conversation with a Canadian-based group that owned it that the value, if we were talking twelve months ago to the day, we'd be talking a hundred basis points lower in cap rate than we're talking about today. 
And re regardless of how um, difficult that conversation was to have with them, I think they respected me that I wasn't over-promising and under-delivering in an environment where we're in a ri we're in rising interest rate environment. So, you know, I, I know the question was, how do I bond? But it's, it, I think, you know, it's a full circle mentality of uh, getting people, you know, to trust in, in you, relating to them with whatever, you know, either social or uh, interesting, you know, things in your life or their life that you can relate to, and then doing the work that shows that you're committed to representing them in the best possible way. Yeah, and a lot of listeners will pick up on a certain point within your uh, conversation there, but there was a golden nugget in there, and that was your your answer to an evaluation of a property. And I think that's how you can really compete with a lot of these volume firms, you know, that are just larger investment firms. Like you said, you can't really accurately assess a value of a property until you actually have all the details on it. And I think just your answer to combat that alone qualifies you just that alone. I mean, it just shows you that you know what you're doing. So I really picked up on that and I appreciate that because I think that's a great point. You know, if, if people say, well, here's the rent roll and give me a value. And a lot of those brokers will because it's so competitive, you know, and that's that's the other question that, you know, Gannon and I were really interested in because you're, you know, you're a small shop, you know, and I think there's definitely advantages to boutique firms. Obviously, I'm biased to that too, but do you feel like that's really your competitive advantage to the Marcus and Millchaps and the SRSs out there when it comes? I mean, because you're talking, you know, 10 million, 14 million, $4 million shopping centers out there where, you know, these guys have thousands of brokers constantly calling these owners on a daily basis. Do you really feel like that's kind of what gives you a competitive advantage or how do you feel that is, what's been the most effective way for you to compete with a lot of the bigger guys out there? Well, first, you know, the, the world is covered with shopping centers, right? And there, there are enough shopping centers to go around. And so, uh, and there are enough owners to go around. Yeah. The mindset, and I've had to um, absorb that on a, you know, on a not daily or weekly or monthly basis, but I have to continue to remind myself of that because I do lose out on assignments based upon um, you know, bigger brands claiming to represent bigger buyer pools. But at the end of the day, you're hiring uh, somebody with, with talent that you respect and you know can um, potentially guide, you, guide them through the transaction with their experience and dedication, right? And so um, as a boutique firm, Again, it's more important to me to manage relationships and go where those relationships take me. And so our value proposition is exactly what I articulated. Uh, you know, once I sink my teeth into a deal, uh, you know, I, I do not let go. And I, I, you know, there, I do not allow anyone else to um, get involved in either in the escrow management. So uh, I guess let's go through the continuum, right? So the continuum is that you engage, you get books and records, you produce a, a BOV, you come up with a marketing strategy depending upon the asset. Uh, they, they give you the, um, the, the you, you sign the rep agreement, you launch the marketing campaign, 
you, you know, you spend, you send out CAs. You, you, I, I, this week I launched a, a total wine anchored center. Last week I, I launched a total wine anchored center in Richmond, Virginia. I got 75 marketing packages out in about six days. And I've already got uh, half a dozen offers on it. And it's not the nicest center, but it has a great tenant. You know, Total Wine uh, is like uh, having a grocery store with no groceries, right? Yeah. It does, right. does 900 bucks a foot in sales. In Virginia, they're not allowed to, um, uh, the state controls the sale of all spirits. So it's strictly wine and beer that this uh, huh. 12,000 foot store uh, does and um, sells. And so um, uh, up until this point, Anybody can kind of do what I'm doing, right? Uh, th- this isn't rocket science. What, what separates the men from the boys in the business is picking the correct buyer, negotiating the contract, getting escrow open, and getting the deal to the closing table, right? Because, the, you know, all deals have hair on it. And as I said earlier, getting the dead bodies up on the surface so that people can deal with them on day one versus having them discover them on day 50 or 60 in a transaction yeah. is what separates me from the rest of the pack, right? Now, I, I have, you know, you have to stay myopically focused on what you're doing. And so I don't really look out there and see what other people, I used to um, look and see what, how other people were conducting themselves. And I do download marketing packages to uh, try to find great ideas from other great brokers. And obviously there's, you know, placer data now, cell phone data, uh, there's enhanced demographics. Um, there's all kinds of things that, you know, can enhance your ability to communicate. But I, I've maintained, you know, kind of a discipline of putting materials together that you can, you know, find the NOI on one page and you don't have to, you know, print out a 30 page book and put it all together in order to underwrite it on, on your own. Right. Um, And so I think simple communication with an NOI that is defendable is is the basis of what I do. And then once we get to escrow, uh, I'm trying to control, you know, that whole process. Right. Uh, I'm I'm trying to do a deal with a buyer that I potentially have a relationship with. If I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm dealing with him directly and not with another broker. And then if I can insert my lender into the equation, then I, I have more control over each element of the deal. Before we go to contract, I've already got quotes for updated surveys and uh, new phase ones and already got you know title commitments cooking. Uh, and so each step of the due diligence process where there's third party other than an appraisal at this point, I'm already dialed in, right? And so, um, you know, look, that, that's what separates me and that's how I compete. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, I am trying to take on new clients uh, every every day, every week, every year. And I, I get a lot of great testimonials and, and people do ask for references. And, you know, there's no deal as good as the last deal that I did. And so I've got guys that that, that through the experience will take five minutes out of their their life to either write an email or take a call and describe, you know, how the events went down. And typically I have earned my stripes by working on tough assignments, tough assignments, environmentally challenged, tenant insolvency, CapEx issues, short-term leases. I mean, the the gamut of tough, um, you know, is all over the board. Uh, But 
you know, that, that's really how I've made my mark. People don't just call me up and uh, sign me up on Whole Foods anchored centers with all credit tenants next to them. Those go to the guys at Cushman and Holiday Finolio and East Dill and the top uh, institutional guys. I yeah. basically, you know, my, my average deal size prior to 2008 was about 10 to 15 million. After 2008, I've been slowly working myself back up from the, you know, four to $5 million deals to the, you know, I've got some bigger stuff out on the market now, but I basically do bread and butter deals between five and 15 million. Yeah. How, how are you sourcing deals right now? Well, I, mean, or, from I guess new clients. So, yeah. So, um, uh, I just, I'm working on a, a grocery anchor deal in Illinois. Um, the group is based in Toronto I'd represented another group in Toronto and uh, uh, a few of the guys left that group and started a new shop. And uh, Adam uh, from that company uh, remembered, I'd, I'd probably done you know eight deals with them, both on the uh, disposition side and, and on the acquisition side, remembered how, uh, remembered the work that we did together. Another brokerage company um, failed to execute on this asset uh, and he uh, terminated their listing agreement and and remembered me and called me. We do cold call, uh, and we do I do employ a full time person on the databases. Uh, for instance, I've sold 24 food line anchored centers uh, over the past six years uh, in portfolios and one offs. And so we know every we've we've databased um, all 1,200 food lines. I know the owners of every one of them, and I frequently just pick up the phone and make calls to cold call. If I have sure. a food line or another grocery anchor shopping center, I'm calling lists of people, and I never hang up the phone without asking, "Hey, what, what's on the 2022 disposition list for you?" But now, again, we are entering a paradigm shift of the market when interest rates are at four percent. Cap rates will move, um, you know, slower than interest rates. But uh, if infl- and, and the Fed continues to, you know, they've got I don't know what the number is. Eight, I can I don't remember how many trillions of dollars the Fed has on their balance sheets, but they haven't tapered yet, and they're not doing anything to tamp in- inflation. And you know, the world uh, is um, trying to redefine what inflation is, right? And, and inflation is going to have a serious, going to bring serious consequences to the commercial real estate sector. In a rising interest rate environment, um, as long as there's liquidity in the market, cap rates will have to move. In 2008, liquidity was wiped out mm-hmm. and no one was financing deals other than banks and life companies who were, were lending at much you know, lower LTVs, lower amortizations, and with recourse. And up until that period, most guys became addicted to non-recourse lending. So uh, as long as there's not a cataclysmic China event or Iran-Ukraine event, I think liquidity will still be available in the market for us to continue to do our jobs. But interest rates are going to impact. So yesterday, I'll give you a quick Example, I was getting debt quotes for the shopping center I described in Illinois, Grocery Anchor Shopping Center, and I got two CMBS quotes. They're now at 4, 4.1% on 10-year money, but now we're back to the financial engineering period where they're all offering interest-only periods, right? So I have a brief window now where I can offset interest rate cap rate 
you know, and, and I can show guys, hey, you can still get an excellent cash on cash return because I got you three or five years of I.O. I also got a quote yesterday from another CMBS B-piece buyer where they'll do five years of I.O. followed by a 30-year AM on the back five years for 10-year money, or they'll do a 45-year amortization for 10 years. Wow. Um, so uh, I haven't, you know, I haven't executed on, on, on that. I've just got the quotes, but I do have some tools in my tool chest now to offset this incredibly fast paced moving interest rate uh, and the slow move of cap rates because they, you know, sellers will move much slower than interest rates will. Uh, but it's, it's definitely going to have a, a serious impact on 2022. So what does the next five years look like to you? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a terrible question. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible. Um, uh, hopefully, well, it really looks bad um, on some of my uh, 2021 acquisitions based upon the cap rates I paid, uh, because at the end of my five-year notes, uh, if interest rates are, you know, at five or 6%, I'm going to be bringing cash to the closing table to refinance those assets unless I pay down some principal. But yeah. I, I just don't know. I mean, it's impossible. It, look, um, we've gone from for 13, 14 years in this low interest rate environment where I probably, if you asked me this question 10 years ago or five years ago, uh, I, I wouldn't know how to answer it then, but I certainly would have, would have said to you, uh, there's no way we're going to stay in this low interest rate environment for another five years. Right. Yeah. And then we did. Right. And so now, uh, and, and I was using as one of our, the, the, I'm sure you use this technique as well. The threat of rising interest rates is a great motivational tool, tool to get listings. I have lots of threats, right? Hey, ICFC is coming up in May in Vegas. We need to get this property underwritten and on the market so we can debut it at ICSC or yeah. ICSC New York's coming up in the first week of December and we need to list this property. Or, you know, we've been in this low interest rate environment for 10 years. We need to sell it now while interest rates are 3%. Then you can capitalize on a compressed cap rate. So I, it's a very unfair question and I don't know how to answer it. Other than to say, that again, and I'll, I'll key on this because I've been through various cycles now, as long as there's liquidity in the market, I think we would be much healthier if we were in a rising cap rate environment. I mean, it would be great. I mean, I'm going to say this, and I don't know if you get uh, feedback on these uh, podcasts, but I like a 10 cap rate environment. A, the math is so much easier when I can divide by 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, um, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think that was as funny as I do, because I think it's so easy to do the math. The, the, other, the other situation is that if you, if, where we've been in cap rates for single tenant and at least assets and multi-tenant assets, whether they be shadow anchored or anchored or grocery anchored or power centers, is, is really unhealthy, right? And we need to be in a higher cap rate environment, higher interest rate environment, just for all of the metrics to work better, lower cost per square foot. Uh, and so uh, it's healthy to to be in a rising interest rate environment, but it, you know it, we've been addicted to low rates and low cap rates for so long. It's going to take some while a while for sellers to adjust. And you know, hopefully, you know, guys that have owned centers uh, who are about to run out of their depreciation are guys that have equity in deals, 
And yeah. they will be able to dispose at higher cap rates, right? Mm-hmm. The guys that paid extremely compressed cap rates and, and did IO periods and long-term amortizations will not have equity in deals. I don't think that there will be a lack of product on the market as long as there's liquidity. And I, but I do think there'll be a lag time uh, between the seller's expectations and cap rates rising as interest rates rise. So I, I think there is an answer to your question. It's just hard to predict you know, out past a year from now or out past two years, because if the Fed can get control of inflation and, and, and what speed they can, they can tamp it down will have a direct impact on, on rates. The inflationary situation that we're in, you know, the transitory talk of last summer, now we're at seven and a half percent inflation rate in January. Uh, the conversation about how this is just greedy corporate America rising prices uh, on, on, on poor um, citizens of the United States, whether it be for uh, food products or what have you. But an interesting concept here is that used car prices are, yeah. are, are inflationary, right? And and no commercial auto manufacturer or company controls the value of my used trade-in, right? So I tr- recently, I ordered a, I'm not embarrassed to say, but I ordered a new, as you're a Ford guy, uh, I, I ordered a Badlands Bronco. Oh, congrats. I just took delivery of it uh, prior to about a 24-inch snowstorm in Indianapolis, which <laughs> we haven't had one of those in decades. Yeah, there you and go. So I traded in another car that, uh, that my wife owned and uh, that she didn't enjoy that I had bought in 2019, late 2019. And I, I got, uh, and they valued it uh, for uh, about 2000 more than I paid for it. And so, and, and so, you know, the, 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 just the whole exercise of inflationary driven markets, I think the, you can look to the auto market, the used auto market as an example of something that's four or five years old being worth more today mm-hmm. than it was worth four or five years ago, right? Because of the lack of, inventory out on the market. So yeah. um, I think that's a good example to show what, what inflation is doing without having a political spin on it. So the impact inflation having on ground up new construction deals, I mean, we're seeing in our market, a lot of projects just aren't happening because the rents aren't keeping up with the construction costs. And we, yeah. there's just not the pool of tenants to pay that. Exactly. Um, it's really making for an interesting environment in the new construction development space within our or, industry. You or you got to be careful because you got to be careful because you go out and you can negotiate your lease and then you start getting change orders for concrete and drywall and material and labor price increases. And it's coming right out of the net, which is happening to us. Yeah. So. Well, and it's just, I mean, the conversation that, I've had with several people and, you know, you, you said it really well, John, I think it is healthy to have, we, we eventually have to have some type of, I wouldn't say reset, but there has to be some sort of leveling out here because the problem, the underlying problem, which we all know is, you know, that the tenant drives everything and the rents, I just feel like aren't keeping up at least with the majority of users and at least in our market here locally in Albuquerque to justify new construction. And that's where the rub is right now. I feel like with a lot of new construction projects is 
there's just that delta and it's not bridged yet. So it'll be interesting to see. That's why, you know, like you said, I don't know where it's going to be in three to five years, but there might be a, a lull with new construction products and new product hitting the market just because of those two metrics, in my opinion. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and that's been going on for some time. The, the yeah. increased cost of um, goods and the construction cost, for instance, you know, rubber membrane roofs are basically unavailable right now. I mean, the supply chain is crippling certain sectors of the construction industry. Yeah. Um, I need, a, I'm working on a deal and it needs a new roof and um, a bid to replace that roof in 2021 was 250,000. Now it's 350,000 and they can't do it until 2023. <laughs> So, um, you know, and, and um, I'm working on a deal uh, where uh, Staples is leaving a shopping center. TJ Maxx is on the hook to backfill that space. It's second generation space. It's in excellent condition. That's two million bucks for the TJ Maxx build out, you know, probably a half a million more than it would have been in 2020. Um, 2021, not that big a um, difference, but the supply chain is definitely impacting uh, the tenant improvement allowance and costs uh, for, you know, adaptive reuse of existing shopping centers. I don't typically play in the um, development sector. Uh, if I get involved in something personally, it's usually redevelopment. I'm working back to backfill a grocery box right now. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm waiting on, I'm unfortunately waiting on the quotes uh, for the TI package. I'm going to split the box in two. Uh, I got to re-roof it. I need to put new HVAC units on. You know, I'm very nervous about the rent that the tenant, well, I have one tenant lined up and the deal may not work. Um, and I've got control of this box. Uh, but, you know, as Shannon pointed out, I mean, you know, it may not work once I get these quotes in. And that is a, uh, it's a horrible situation. Uh, a, you know, if you can't get the material and then the material costs are going up exponentially, you know, it's hard to get anything done. So, yeah. I'm curious with a lot of your clients, because uh, this has come up with me a, a few different times, but are, are people paying attention more to the rent escalation and increases within leases right now? Well, you know, the, the, the technique, uh, I mean, obviously we use Argus. Uh, we're always working on internal rates of return, both leveraged and unleveraged. Um, you know, in uh, every deal I do leverage and I can, I'll just continue to beat this to death until you tell me to stop saying it, but leverage is, on. <laughs> leverage is um, uh, the, the key component to getting any deal done. And so when I'm building an IRR model, clearly um, having rent bumps within, you know, the initial term and then rent bumps in the option are obviously the best way for guys that do what I do uh, from both sides of the desk that I sit on, but from the brokerage aspect, I can distract people from the going in cap rate and show them where the cap rate is in year, you know, two, three, five, seven, yeah. depending on what they tell me their potential hold period is. I have lots of groups that are limited partnership groups, fund groups that have a, a, a predetermined exit date on everything they buy. And so in order to pay the returns and preferred returns to their partners, you know, they've got, they hit an internal rate of return that allows them to make money and allows them to pay their partners. So sometimes the sophistication level of 
the sellers that I work with, they, they don't really know any better. I'm working on a center near Cincinnati, Ohio. And this guy, this poor guy, he's a second generation kind of shopping center owner. His dad was a Kroger developer. So he inherited a bunch of Kroger anchored centers. Wow. And in, in one center, I've, I've been, he's been asking me to underwrite it and underwrite it year after year after year after year. And he has the same tenants in there. And the rents average you know, like $5 a foot. Wow. Um, and then and then the value of the center never goes up. He's like, well, why, why isn't this value of my center going up? And I go, well, first of all, you continue to renew these tenants in order to keep it 100% occupied <laughs> at five bucks a foot. Yeah. And then you're, you're arguing with me that, you know, because you haven't spent any money on CapEx and that, you know, the, 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 the mom and pop tenancy, you know, isn't going to uh, uh, be evocative enough to compress the cap rate to, to the cap rates that you're seeing other centers in your market trading for. Yeah. So it, it's extremely important to, to show NOI growth and IRR growth. And that's the, the key uh, to being able to, you know, take a property out at a, at a maybe a below market cap rate, but get people to focus on that. And then that leverage component, you know, factoring in. Great insight. So appreciate you sharing yeah, that. So if you're negotiating leases, it's almost better to give a guy a break in his first year or first couple years in order to, uh, you know, if it, depending upon the, the type of tenant, it's credit tenant, mm-hmm. it's a rated, credit rated tenant, it's a mom and pop, but clearly a lot of guys need help in launching their, their business. So if you're building for them or if you're building out for them, you know, uh, giving them a little bit of a rent break in the first six months or giving them a free rent period, and then annual rent bumps. I mean, do anything you possibly can to show rent and NOI growth, and that helps on the exit, uh, but also helps a lender get comfortable that you know their debt coverage ratio uh, is uh, decreasing as as time progresses. You know, uh, I am linear in all my thought processes, and so I think it's imperative for every in order for the partnership between landlord and tenant that tenants be transparent with landlords so that you can always calculate the percentage of rent to sales ratio on a weekly, monthly, biannually and annually basis. Most times you're lucky to get them annually, but clearly having that metric and knowing what they need to be, whether it's an industry standard or what they tell you on their percentage of rent to sales ratio is crucial to you having a healthy tenant in a shopping center or in a single tenant at lease building. For the life of me, I don't understand why some tenants don't want to answer that question, right? It makes no logical sense because if they come to you, I I owned a center in Arab, Alabama many years ago, Dollar Tree came to me, they were paying, uh, and and they were paying 10 bucks a foot on a 6,000 foot Dollar Tree. And I got complaints every day from the neighboring tenants about the, you know, tens of thousands of cardboard boxes stacked up behind the store. So they call me up and they say, hey, we, we need a rent reduction. And I'm like, really? Okay, well, I'm willing to, I'm willing to entertain it. What are your sales? Oh, we don't give out sales. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, 
Uh, I've been to the site. My tenants constantly complain about the amount of volume that your store is doing. So in order for me to um, consider giving you a rent reduction, which I'm willing to consider, even though I have a CMBS loan, which may put me in default, I'm willing to consider it. Just share your sales with me and let's calculate a percentage of rent sales ratio that works for you. And that's with and that A, you tell me you need to be at and B, I can confirm as industry standards. Oh, we, we don't share sales. We really need the rent reduction because other stores in the region aren't doing well. And I was like, okay, well, this conversation has just ended and um, <laughs> talk to you later. And I never gave him the rent reduction. So my point is, is that, you know, the, the, the rent, rent increases, percentage of rent to sales ratios being to calculate those things, all are imperative to having a healthy tenant landlord relationship and, and knowing whether, you know, that they can survive and are sustainable. Yeah. And just as it relates to the future landscape of retail overall on a, on a macro level, things that have changed or that are changing yeah. all of the omni-channel conversations, you know, shop online or pick up in store. You know, my wife does, you know, I can't remember the name of it. They ship her a bunch of clothes. She tries them on them. She likes them. She keeps them. If not, they, they send them back. You know, what, uh, what do you see are some of the, the major things impacting that, landscape as we move forward into uh the metaverse and the the, the new uh the new world of retail can we go for another hour clayton yeah right yeah <laughs> i know we're gonna have to have you back on for round two or three well um obviously the pandemic um let's just focus on what the pandemic did we can talk about the changing shopping patterns in a minute but the pandemic was the greatest thing that ever happened to the grocery industry, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm now getting in, you know, I got 20, uh, 20 sales and now we're getting in 2021 sales. Uh, 2021 really didn't uh, come down from the incredible 2020 that we experienced. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, grocery anchored shopping centers and the B shops next to those centers all had pretty much an, uh, a bump in 2020 and 2021. And I think that shopping patterns for those types of commercial real estate assets will sustain themselves. And I think grocery retailers are perfecting their art, right? They now have kiosk drive up online sales buildings in their parking lot. They're all doing gas and they're improving their C-store sales. I'm working on a a grocery now that has um, an enhanced uh, pickup food uh, C store connected to their gas station where they have prep salads and prep lasagnas. So they're not selling cigarettes, Mountain Dew and Cheetos. No. They're now selling legit healthy foods. And so I, I see this execution at retail amongst numerous uh, grocery operators, which is wonderful. As we started out the call, I told you I love retail. I love execution of retail and to see not only Whole Foods, uh, aspiring to improve their brands and offerings, I'm seeing in all different types, different, you know, whether it's Kroger or Hy-Vee, or in, I don't know if you have H-E-B in your neck of the woods, mm-hmm. and Wegmans, and, um, and the food line, even even the food lines are improving their performance. So on a more macro level, uh, as we, you know, there, there clearly are sectors of the commercial r- retail sector that have been impacted on online shopping, and Amazon is clearly tearing a swath, you know, through a lot of those. But uh, I, I think there are, Dix is, is out with new brands. 
they have, uh, they're doing larger format stores with more interactive experiences. They're doing a new high-end uh, store. They're doing their fishing concept stores. Uh, TJ Maxx now has uh, four different brands. Uh, Ross is, um, you know, the Rosses and TJXs of the world are lighting it on fire. Dollar General now has a new brands. So I, I think that the void, other than, you know, who knows where we're going with the Nordstroms and the Macy's, and we obviously know where the Sears and Kmart's have gone. But I think there are that there will be replacements, Gannon, that will um, will backfill um, some of these boxes of of uh, types of tenants that have failed. Uh, and so I, I do think that the pandemic caused a, um, you know, the, the, it, it had wider ramifications to people continuing to want to now venture out and, 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 and do physical shopping. Clearly, there's always going to be a need uh, and, and a proliferation of online shopping just because of how easy it is for some. But I'm, I am a a student of, um, you know, larger metropolitan activities and how that's impacted. So I have a home in Miami. Um, I see much more e-commerce e e deliveries in a more inflationary driven uh, major metropolitan market than I do in, in more tertiary and secondary markets. And so, um, you know, uh, in M Miami and elsewhere, maybe even in Albuquerque, you can have all your groceries delivered to you. Uh, by various different um, um, online delivery systems. Uh, I don't see that happening that much in Indianapolis because, or elsewhere that I travel uh, and in other you know, markets. And so I, I think there is a, you know, from a macro level, you have to break it down by major metropolitan areas and how they're um, acclimating to online shopping, more secondary markets with populations of, you know, I don't know what Albuquerque is right now, Santa Fe, but markets with a quarter of a million, half a million people definitely have different shopping habits. Uh, and then, you know, cities, you know, the size of Indianapolis or Columbus or, um, you know, we, Charlotte, or, you know, I can name cities all over in my markets that I work in that um, uh, boxes, you know, bacon boxes are being adaptively reused. I just, I gave you the staples transitioning to TJ Maxx as an example. So, look, I think that um, there's, there's no um, lack of uh, ingenuity at retail. And I think that, um, um, you know, the, the, there are industries like the auto industry that has to completely change the way it operates, right? The days of an auto dealership having 300 cars on the lot and you'd be able to go there and pick any flavor you want are history. Now, now you know, in 20... 20 car lots were had 20 cars in 2021, late 2021, 40 cars. And so they're now going to shop to an experience where you come in, where you order online, and then you pick it up, right? So I think there's going to be examples of retail execution changing and the changing of the guard. Maybe the, the, the Tesla model will become, you know, what other, you know, car manufacturers aspire to in order to reduce overhead and, and sell more vehicles. Uh, but I think at pure retail, um, you know, it, it's, it's constantly evolving. Simon Property Group is based here in Indianapolis. Uh, you know, they're confronted with really too much GLA and probably every mall, maybe not every mall, but a lot of malls that they have and trying to figure out the adaptive reuse, trying to turn them into mixed use, with more entertainment, more restaurants is the way that they've been going for many years now. So um, that, that's kind of my 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 bullet point assessment. Obviously there's a lot more, we can go much more in depth uh, on, on that topic. Yeah. I, 
I tell people all the time, I think there's such a misconception with what's out in the mass media waves right now, as far as what's happening in retail, because to use the the word healthy again, I think it is healthy what's happening right now. It's a change of season. You have a lot of these retailers that haven't evolved and adapted and, you know, kept up with the times and they're getting, you know, repositioned and backfilled with better, more modern uses, which benefits the consumer. So um, I think it's in a, I think it's in a very, very healthy landscape. And I think we'll continue to see that as we wrap up, we always kind of like to ask this question at, at the end, but I, you're, you're kind of unique because um, I respect you in multiple, multiple different lenses, if you will. But we always say, what, what is one piece of advice you would give? And I want you to answer that in, in two ways. So I'd want, I want you to answer it. What, what piece of advice, what one piece of advice would you give an investment broker right now trying to grow his business? And then what is the most critical piece of advice that you'd give to uh, an individual looking to buy an investment right now? Well, tough, uh, tough questions again. Yeah. Um, you know, the advice is uh, to, to any broker uh, is to have absolute integrity treat and, and it's transcending through life itself. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to have integrity. You have to live by the golden rule. Uh, and I think being introspective in how you deal with people and how you would want to be treated by them. You know, there's a lot of rejection being a broker and being and all that rejection causes scar tissue. And it takes a rare, uh, no, maybe not rare, but it takes a special person to, you know, dust yourself off after being rejected and coming back. But if you stay true to yourself and have integrity, and that means a lot of, you know, that, that just means treating all people uh, uh, the same, regardless of who they are and what color they are and what sex they are and what religious affiliation they are, I think it shines through. And so, you know, my mantra is always to do whatever I do at 100% the first time I do it. And I think that that, work shows through. Uh, And, you know, every day when I wake up, I look in the mirror and I have an anxiety attack that I've got to get to work quick. um, And then I'm going to make myself, I know that I'm going to make myself uncomfortable because people are going to, I'm going to deal with rejection and I'm going to deal with painful things that happen every day, but I have to continue to believe in myself and come back each day and try to do things at the level that I, that, you know, and the commitment at that level is a hundred percent. And so um, I don't know if that is an, is an a- a- answer to your question, Absolutely. but um, you know, the rejection is going to come and how one deals with it um, is um, a reflection of their character. Um you know, there's lots of days I drive home and, uh, and you know, nothing good happened that day. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't happen a lot. Uh, but if I do happen to lose a listing to somebody else that I feel is inferior to my abilities, that's very painful. And I got to look myself in the mirror and figure out what I did wrong. Sometimes maybe I didn't do anything wrong. And it was simply somebody choosing, you know, to pick CB Richard Ellis over John Reiser, Re- or Reiser Retail Group just because it was a safer choice for them to go back and if CB fails to execute, they can say, well, we picked CB. Uh, Riser was too risky, 
right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so, you know, uh, that's the advice I'd give. It's really yeah. holding myself uh, to a level of integrity uh, and dealing with everybody the same. Yeah. What about for uh, buyers and sellers right now of shopping you know, centers, single tenant deals? I kind of already went through all that, right? Under, <laughs> underwriting has to change in this rising interest rate environment. And so, uh, I, you know, that, that is, we are in a tough, tough situation right now because we haven't been here for so many years. So a lot of guys that have gotten into the business and the broker side and then the investment side have never lived through this, this cycle. Um, but, you know, I, I went back and started looking at deals that I did early in my career. And as we talked about early in the podcast, cap rates were way higher than they were now and interest rates were, were way higher. And so um, my, my advice is that, you know, you may need to pause uh, you may have money burning a hole in your pocket in order to execute, but it may take, uh, you may have to look at multiple deals and underwrite multiple deals in order to get the right deal where you can get the correct return. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't stretch in a rising interest rate environment to buy something that, you know, you won't be able to service the debt on in the future. So I think it's just a cautionary, I mean, my advice is to be very cautious uh, moving forward, underwrite things uh, with, uh, the concept that, you know, the rates could continue to, to rise throughout 2022, but fundamentals exist. So uh, make sure that, you know, I just think that the period of time and what we went through on the deal we transacted on, I wouldn't do that deal today. Um, you know, all sectors will be impacted on inflation, inflationary driven interest rates at this point. So mm-hmm. proceed with caution. Well, we appreciate that. We appreciate you sharing all your knowledge. And this has been this has been a lot of fun. We know you're a, a busy guy, so we'll let you run. But thanks again for yeah and kind of shedding some light and lighting up the paths for a lot of us out there. So thanks again, man, for taking the well, time. Thanks for the invite. Again, nice to talk to you, Clayton. Great to see Thank you, John. Today. And I um, uh, appreciate you know the opportunity. Absolutely. Hey listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. If you feel someone within your network would benefit and learn from this podcast, please feel free to share this or any other episode with them. If you feel you have benefited from this podcast, please leave us a review on any platform where you listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your support and feedback, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay educated.